Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 13. We're about to wrap up this chapter. Just as a reminder, beginning with John 13 and all the way through to the first half of John chapter 20, which is seven and a half chapters, which is approximately one-third of the length of this book. John devotes all that space to what Jesus said and did in the last 18 to 20 hours of his life. All this has been devoted to what the Lord Jesus Christ did at the Lord's Supper that last night before he was crucified. And then later on that evening when he was arrested. And then as he's tried. And then as he's crucified. So it's pretty clear what's most important to John. And that is what our Lord Jesus says. What he teaches and what he does in these last approximately 20 hours of his life. I've been looking forward to get to this portion of the Gospel of John. Yeah. I won't say it's my favorite part of the Gospel of John. Chapter 10 is my favorite part of the Gospel of John. But this is where the rich theology comes in. This is where the rich teaching and I guess I'll go ahead and say it now. I was going to save it for next week. As we get into chapter 14 and 15, and some into 16, it's going to be interesting. The Lord Jesus has only a few hours left to live with this bunch of knuckle-headed disciples. He only has a few hours to teach them. And what does he spend those few hours teaching them? Teaching them the Trinity. Teaching them about the Father. Teaching them about Himself. Teaching them about the Holy Spirit who is to come with power. He's going to teach more here about His oneness with the Father than He has so far in the Gospel of John. Think about that. This is what He spends these last few hours teaching these men. Get it settled in your mind who I am. And as I said last week, some people, when you're teaching through John, and you teach it the way I've been teaching through it, which is the emphasis is on who is Jesus Christ, then the question comes, well, what does that have to say to me? Well, what it has to say to you is who is Jesus Christ? That's the most important part. It's, it's all about having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ for who he is and what he's done. And so we pick up there tonight. So far in chapter 13, the Lord Jesus has washed the 12 disciples' feet. And then he frankly told them that one of them is going to betray him. And then he pointed out to John that Judas is the one that's going to betray him. And then he sends Judas on his way and says, what you do, do quickly. Everything he says from here on out, after Judas leaves, is to the eleven alone. 
Judas is not present. Keep that in mind. All the promises he's going to make are to the faithful 11. They don't include Judas. They're to the faithful 11 and to us. To us who trust him. So beginning with verse 33, I want to read down through verse 6 of chapter 14. So follow along in God's word, please. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father. But through me. Mm. Like Bob. I don't like. Having to put titles. On sermons. Or on lessons. But I, I gave this one. Because Bill requires titles. Before he puts them on sermon audio. And, and I, I call this. Comfort for the worst news possible. Probably when we get to the end of verse 6, I'm not going to have a wrap-up. Probably. Because I don't know how to improve on what Jesus says here. Because we're all going to get hit at some time with the worst news possible. And nobody can comfort us. They'll try. We love one another. We'll try to comfort one another. But he can comfort us. So let's begin. Verse 33. The Lord Jesus says, little children. John is the only gospel writer that uses the term little children. Uh, they all refer to Jesus calling his disciples children. But little children. Little children, it's a term of affection. It's also a term of understanding. Little children are clueless. They have no idea. They need to be taught everything. Little children are absolute. They're, they're impulsive. 
and they charge on but they have to be grown up they have to be educated they have to well mature so he he gives this affectionate title to these disciples who are so pitifully clueless but he loves them he loves them he says to them I'll be with you a little while longer you'll seek me and as I said to the Jews now I say also to you where I'm going you cannot come twice at the feast of booths six months earlier he told the Jews I'm going away and where I go where I'm going you can't come and the Jews said is he going to kill himself or is he going to the Greeks what does he mean by that now he tells his disciples I'm going away and where I'm going you can't come that's a shock please remember what they're expecting and we've said this repeatedly as we've approached this night what are the now 11 it had been the 12 Judas was expecting this as well what were they expecting they expected the same thing that the multitudes expected when they were hailing Jesus as he came into Jerusalem he's going to come in he's going to declare himself king he is going to be anointed king by the priests he's going to be set up as king in Jerusalem he's going to somehow miraculously or at the head of thousands of uh, stirred up Jews he's going to drive the Romans out of Judah out of Galilee out of Samaria he's going to reestablish the kingdom of David the kingdom of Solomon it's going to be even better than it was when Solomon was king. He's going to expand God's people's territory all the way from the Mediterranean Sea to the river Euphrates as God had promised them before, which they never fulfilled. He's going to set up the kingdom of God on earth. He's going to live forever. They'll die, but he'll keep living on because he's God's Messiah. It's going to be the golden age that the Jews have been looking forward to all these generations. And he's going to do it. And they've been waiting for him to do it ever since he came into Jerusalem. Had a good start. Came in, we're told in, in Mark, that he went to the temple... For the second time, he cleansed the temple. He drove out the money changers. He drove out all those who were selling sacrificial animals. Everybody's thinking, he's taking over. This is good. He looks around. And then he leaves. And of course, the twelve are right behind him. Where are you going, Lord? But they're right behind him. And he goes out to Bethany. Spends the night in Bethany. And every day he comes back into Jerusalem goes to the temple and sits and teaches alright maybe he'll set up the kingdom tomorrow next day he comes in sits and teaches ok let's get on with it now here is the Passover night 
Surely, when the feast of the Passover is over, when the feast of weeks is over, I'm not, not weeks, excuse me, the feast of unleavened bread, the seven days of unleavened bread, when that's over, now he's going to set up the kingdom. Now all this is going to come into place. Now we'll be the big shots. We'll be the rulers along with him here in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the palace that we're going to build for him. And he says, I'm only going to be with you a little time. I'm going away. That's the worst news they could have heard. What? What do you mean? You're only going to be with us a little while longer. And then you're going away. You mean after you're made king, you're going away. And we'll go with you. No, where I'm going, you can't come. And you can imagine that they're looking, no, they're still around the table. You can imagine they're looking at one another. And they're thinking, what's going on? <laughs> you're everything to us. What do you mean you're going away? I mean, you're our Messiah. You're our teacher. You're the one who has opened up our eyes to God like nobody else has. The Pharisees and the Sadducees never told us the things that you told us about God. You're our king. All our hopes are in you. Of course, we'll seek you. We want to be with you. They're as perplexed at this point as the Jews were. But there's a difference. When Jesus told the Jews he was going away and that they would not be able to find him. He doesn't say that to the disciples. You won't be able to find me. He just says I'm going away. The Jews are pretty happy about that. We'll get rid of him. But now the 11 faithful disciples, they're not only perplexed and confused, they're filled with sadness. All their hopes for the kingdom are collapsing right before their eyes. He's got to be here to set up the kingdom. All their hopes for their future roles in the kingdom. Sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's collapsing. All their hopes for knowing God and being acceptable to God are collapsing because he's the one that's taking them there. He's the one that's showing them the truth. They're asking themselves, what are we going to do now? What do you mean you're going away? See, they don't understand. They're, they're thinking, he's going to a foreign country. He's going to a, con a different continent. They're, they're thinking that he's just leaving. They don't realize he's talking about his death. They should know that, but they don't. He says, for a little while, in just a few short hours, where I'm going, that is to the cross and to the grave, you can't come. I have to do this alone. There's no place at the cross for you now. Look at verse 34. Their heads are still spinning from this. And he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Hmm. A new commandment. Final orders from their king. 
I'm going away. These are my last instructions to you. Love one another. I'm not going to get into love tonight. Next Sunday in the second service, we're going to dive deep into agape, this kind of love. We're going to see what this kind of love is and what it's not. But I'm going to give you just a a little bit of a spoiler tonight, okay? Agape is not an emotional reaction to what we find attractive in someone or something else. That's what we consider to be love. Guys, you see that woman, you see that girl, and you fall in love. That's what we say. It's all emotion. It's all emotion. You see in her that attraction that you want. And you say you love her. You dish up some of uh, Glenda's chocolate eclair. And you set it in front of me and I say, man, I love this. Because there's an emotional response to what I find attractive in what Glenda has cooked for us that day. You know? So, when we think of love, we think of emotion. We, we link love with the heart. Love ought to be linked with the mind. But I, we won't get into that until Sunday. What Jesus is talking about here is a love that is a determination to seek what is best for its object. Final spoiler. We know it's not a feeling. We know it's not emotions. We know it's not a response to what we find attractive in its object. Because this same Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount commanded us to love our enemies. It's a willful determination to seek what is best for the object of that love. So, that's all we're going to say about it tonight. He says, the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another this way. Now, it's a new commandment. And you're Bible scholars, so you say, but wait a minute, we've already been told to love our neighbor in Leviticus chapter 19. So how can it be a new commandment? I'm glad you asked. There are two words that are, two, two words in the Greek New Testament that are translated new. One of them means something that is what we would call brand new. It's something that's just sprung up. It's something that's just been made, just now been made. Brand new. The other one is this word. And it means something that has not been used before. Or something that's being used in a different way than it ever was used before. It's a new way of using this. In Leviticus 19.18, God commands us to love our neighbor. Here the Lord Jesus commands us to love one another. You see, you're to love those who believe in me. You have one thing in common, and that's me, Jesus is saying. The one thing you have in common is your mind. I chose you, and they don't know it, but he's about to buy them 
with his own suffering and his blood. So, even as I have loved you, if you're devoted to me, and I have loved them, then you love them, just like I love them. And you say, that's, that's a tall order. Oh yeah, it is. You, you can't do it until you've been born again of the Spirit. There's no way we can do that in our flesh, you know. But look at verse 35, why it's so important that we love one another. I mean, yes, love God, but why is it so important that we love one another? He tells us in verse 35, by this, if you love one another, in this way, all will know that you are my disciples. You are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the public Seal. This is the public convincing seal that we are truly His. That we love Christians. All Christians. That we love Christians who are hard to love. Because their personality has not been fully sanctified yet. That we love Christians... Who believe things that are not right. But they belong to Jesus. And they have received Jesus Christ as their Lord. Now I'm not talking about everybody who claims to be a Christian. But he says we're to love his. His. Look at verse 35. I mean verse 36. Simon Peter said to him. Good old Simon Peter. Simon Peter said to him. Lord. Where are you going? You see, he missed that whole business about love. He heard Jesus say, I'm going away and where I'm going, you cannot come. And he locked in on that and he didn't hear anything else after that. What? What what do you mean you're going away? Where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now. Where's Jesus going? going to the cross Peter you can't follow me now but you will later and we know from reliable church tradition that Peter was crucified just like the Lord Jesus Christ only crucified upside down the difference is the Lord Jesus crucifixion bought us and paid for our sins Peter's crucifixion didn't do anything for us but it did seal the testimony that he was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 37. Peter said to him again, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. There's Peter. He's so full of himself. He's so self-confident. All right, rabbit. I don't like me, me, hymns. I think I've told you that before. Me, me, hymns. Hymns about what I'm going to do. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'm going to do this. I have determined. I, me, 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 me. Yeah. Uh, It's... That's, that's Peter's spirit. 
Look at what I'm going to do for you, Lord. I am so committed to you. A whole lot more. I'm so much more committed to you than the rest of those people that aren't nearly as committed as I am. I've made my mind up and I'm going to do it. That's what that's Peter, full of himself, full of self-confidence, like the Pharisees. Ouch! That's the Pharisees' problem. They're full of themselves. They're so confident that they can please God by themselves. They don't need grace. I can do it. I'll meet the conditions by myself. Thank you very much. Here Peter's got the same spirit as a Pharisee. It's interesting. I will lay down my life for you. Peter says he's going to die for Jesus. And when push comes to shove, he won't. But Jesus is going to die for Peter. Verse 38. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Really, Peter? Hmm. You're going to have an opportunity to put that to the test. Truly, truly. This is one of those points where it's almost like the Lord Jesus is leaning forward and getting into his eyes and saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow three times until you have denied me. Now Jesus is the same. You're going to die for me. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. I think I just said before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me. I got it backwards. Before the rooster crows, you're going to... That's not the way Jesus said that. Love one another the way I love you. Remember that. He's been talking to Peter. Everything he said so far has been directed to Peter. And Peter's world crashes. He's crushed. That his Lord would say that to him. No, I mean it. No, you don't. And you're going to deny me three times tonight. This night. No, that's impossible. But Jesus said it out of his own mouth. So it must be true. And he's crushed. He doesn't say anything else for the rest of the night. The next time we hear from Peter is when he's denying the Lord Jesus. Now everybody's silent. Nobody's talking. Everybody's stunned. All 11 around the table. One of us is going to betray him. He's going away. We can't go with him. Peter's going to deny him. The is going to deny him. I mean, I can understand I might have done that, but not Peter. And so their minds are reeling, their their hearts are agitated. Uh, What we would say, they're torn up inside. You see, they started out this evening so well. The joy of the Passover meal. 
the, the fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A good meal. And then the Lord's Supper. And the kingdom's coming. And if not tomorrow, well then surely in a week or so, the kingdom will be established, the Romans will be gone, God's people will be free. It's going to be the golden age of Israel. And we're going to be sitting right beside him on thrones, ruling over Israel. You've gone from that to this deep, aching sorrow. All this terrible news that, that's coming out of Jesus' own mouth. Now, remember, all this time that they had been with Jesus for three years... He's been preaching the good news of forgiveness of sins and the coming kingdom of God. And that he's bringing in the kingdom of God. And now, on the verge of everything coming to fruition, everything coming together, he brings us this bad news. And so their world has collapsed on them. Everything they've anticipated, everything they've expected, everything they've been looking for, everything they trusted in has just collapsed. We're losing everything. We're losing Him. And Jesus sees it in their faces. And He sees it in their stunned silence. And the one who is about to be arrested and mocked and tried and tortured and crucified. And he who is about to have all of the wrath of the Father poured out on him for us. With all that facing him, what does he do? He turns around to comfort them. Look at 14.1. He literally says, stop dismaying your hearts stop dismaying your hearts this is uh, it's, a, it's an imperative it's a command and it has a particular construction that means stop doing something you're currently doing you're sitting there torn up on the inside stop it don't be torn up don't be tearing yourself up believe in God well, yeah, they believe in God. Of course they believe in God. They're Jesus' disciples. He chose them. They, they certainly believe in God. But remember what we said a couple of weeks ago about saving faith? What he's saying here is not just believe in God, but trust in God. Trust in God. Yeah, your world's falling apart right now, but trust him. Trust him, he knows what he's doing. Trust him in the pit of confusion and anguish and sorrow. Trust him when the worst imaginable stares you right in the face. Trust him that he's got this. He knows what he's doing. And he'll see you through this. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Trust me that I haven't brought you this far just to abandon you. That's what you're terrified of. I'm going away and you can't come and you think I'm abandoning you. I'm going away, but I'm not going to abandon you. 
Trust that all I've predicted and all I've promised will come to pass, just like I said it would. Yes, I am going to be arrested. Yes, I am going to be tried. Yes, I am going to be mocked. Yes, I will be tortured. Yes, I will be condemned to death. Yes, they will crucify me and I will die. Yes, that's true. Trust it. But also trust what I've been telling you three times in the Gospel of Mark alone. And three days later, I will be raised from the dead. Trust me with that. And even more important, notice what Jesus does. Trust in God. Trust also in me. He puts himself in the same category as God. Trust me exactly the same way you trust God. Here's the echo. Before Abraham was, I am. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now buckle in, because this may be a little different from what you're expecting. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Where's Jesus going? He's going to the cross, but ultimately he's going to his Father's house. He's going home. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. A more literal way of saying that is in my Father's house are many dwellings. Not mansions. When you think of a mansion, you think of a multi-room, huge, palatial type of place. No, that's not the word. It's a place to live. It's an apartment in a big palatial mansion. In my father's house, there are many apartments. I'm going to prepare. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. What have you always been heard preached? He's going to get our place in the father's house ready, right? He's going, it's been 2,000 years. Man, what kind of a place must we have in heaven? Because he's had 2,000 years to prepare our place in heaven. No. That's not it. It's not that our dwelling isn't ready. No. Matthew tells us just the opposite. Matthew tells us our dwelling has been ready a long time. Listen to this. Matthew 25, 34. This is what the king says to those who have served him. Come you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Our dwelling place in the father's house is already prepared. What's he saying? I go. I go to my father's house. But where do I have to go first before I go to the father's house? To the cross. And it's on the cross that I prepare the place. Matthew said, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We can't inherit that kingdom until our sins have been cleansed, until our sins have been carried away. You can't enter God's presence 
until your sins have been removed and you've been cleansed. He's going to the cross to take away our sins. To pay for our sins. To cleanse us from our sins. And after he purges our sins, then the way to the dwelling will be prepared. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm going to prepare the way for you to be able to inherit the Father's house, the apartment in the Father's house. But it's not the dwelling that's important. It's who's there. The Father's there. And I'm going to be there. You're all ripped up on the inside right now because I'm going away and you're going to be separated from me. And you think it's going to be permanent. And you can't stand it. You're everything to us. We can't live without you. My whole life is coming finally to fruition since I've met you. You are my life. But you're going away? Yes, but I'm going to come back and take you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Now, there's two fulfillments to this. So stick with me on this. The first one is, after Jesus suffers for us on the cross, and he's buried, and he rises from the dead, I will come again and receive you, that is, welcome you to myself in the upper room. I will come again to you in the upper room, and you're going to flip out. Now, you can't tell him that, but he's, that's one way that this is fulfilled. In the upper room, I'm going to say to you, you're, you're going to be backed up in a corner thinking that I'm a ghost. And I'm going to say, look, it's me. It's really me. Handle me. Feel me. Look at the marks. But the other way is, after I've ascended to heaven, after I've been enthroned, and when the end of days comes, when that great day comes, the day that I return to earth, then I will come again to you and welcome you to myself so that where I am in the Father's house, there you may be also with me in the Father's house. Everything you've been looking for, everything that you know you can't live without, you're going to have. You'll never be separated from me again in the Father's house. Mm. And then verse 4, he dumps this on them. And you know the way where I'm going. <laughs> and as always, these poor, bewildered, downcast disciples don't have a clue. Because what he's saying is you already know the way that I'm going. You know the way that I must walk before I can get back to the Father's house. Now that's what we know he's saying. But they're sitting, we mean, the way. We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way that you're going? That's what Thomas says. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? Poor old exasperated Thomas. Now, he's not just being a drama queen. 
Think about it. This is true. Think about all that Jesus has dumped on them in just a few sentences. Everything from happy days are here again. Everything that we've been expecting is coming to fruition. The kingdom of God is going to be established on earth within a few days to none. I'm going away. And then he says, and you know the way I'm going. <laughs> and Thomas says, no, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way to where you're going that we don't even know where you're going? He's being honest. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. <laughs> Remember that Jesus is talking about returning to his father's house. He's talking about returning to heaven after he has gone to the cross. I'm going to the cross and then I'm going to the father's house. We have the advantage of knowing what happens. So that's why we know this is what's going on. He's returning to his beaming father who is sitting on his throne with outstretched arms saying, Welcome home, son. You have done it. And all the... Someday we'll have a lesson on angels. All of the horrifying, terrible powerful warrior messengers of almighty God are standing up and shouting for joy that their king has come home their creator has come home as a conqueror and he didn't even need them and by himself he has defeated Satan he has defeated sin he's defeated death and as the conquering king he returns Back to his glory with his father in heaven. And all heaven is rejoicing. All heaven is ecstatic that the king has come home. That's what he's talking about. So now to the eleven and to us. Who he has promised and they don't get it. But we get it. That he's coming back to take us with him. To take us by the hand, if you will. And walk up to his father. And say, Father, may I introduce to you the one you gave to me from before the foundation of the world. Whom I have bought. And whom you have adopted. That is... That's, that's what we've got waiting for us. That's what's going to happen. But how do you get there? They're utterly confused. They don't know what's going on. We know what's going on. And so he says to them, which they're not going to get it yet. They will at Pentecost. But he's saying to us now, are you with me? By the way, I, I left this out. When he begins talking... In John 14, verse 1, when he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Stop dismaying your heart. He's no longer talking to Peter. He's talking to all 11 now. He's, he uses a plural verb there, not a singular verb. And he says, when he says, Believe in God, believe also in me, he's talking to all 11. So he's talking to all 11 at this point and through them to us. And he says, I am 
the way. I, I myself, am the way back to the Father's house. I'm the way to forgiveness. I'm the way to cleansing. I'm the way to justification with God. I am the way to open-armed acceptance by God the Father in his throne. I am the way. There's no other way to reconciliation with the Father but me. I don't merely show the way. I am the way. You, you come to the Father when you receive me. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the truth. The exclusive truth about God. He's not the kind of God we expected. I mean, let's face it. We, he's not. Before we were converted, we had all these weird and strange and crazy notions about God that God was going to make us earn our salvation if we could just get good enough. He's not that kind of God. He's the God of grace. He's the God who chooses you before the foundation of the world. He's the kind of God who sends his only beloved son to be sacrificed for you. He's the God who knows you can't do anything except sin until he converts you. He says, I'm the truth about that God. I'm the one who told you that God. Remember what the Pharisees were teaching you? Remember what I told you. I am utterly dependable. Everything I've said to you and everything I've shown you about God in myself is absolutely true. And the Lord Jesus Christ is in himself the exclusive source of the final truth about God. He is the ultimate interpreter and the fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament word. And any so-called spiritual truth that contradicts what Jesus said or did is a lie. He says, I am the life. And we know here he's talking about eternal life. I'm going to condense it to this. He is the life. He doesn't, now he gives life. He kept telling us over and over and over. I mean, how many times has he said in the, in the Gospel of John that he gives eternal life to those who believe in him, to those who trust in him, to those who receive him? But this eternal life isn't something outside of him. It's, it's not like I'm going to give, I don't have anything on me right now. I'm going to give these keys to Matt. This, the key is not in me. The key is something separate. So eternal life is not something that he gives to us. Eternal life, he is the life. You get him and in him is life, John 1, 4 says. So when you get him, when you trust him, when you receive him, then the eternal life comes. And I will say again, no matter who you were or what you were before you receive him. So the 11, their, their long anticipated expectations and dreams and hopes have been smashed by Jesus' few words here. No, there's not going to be any earthly golden age yet. 
The kingdom of God is not going to be set up on earth to the extent that everyone living on the face of the earth will joyfully receive it and joyfully serve God yet. And you're not going to sit on thrones judging with me yet. But in me, in me, you have everything you really need. You have the way back to the Father in me. And you're going. You, you'll be there. In me, you have all the truth about God. All of it that you need. And in me, in me, you have eternal life. And that's all I can say. How, how do you add anything to that? So stand with me, please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we're dismissed.